Former Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby J, invites you to put your socks on. Winning and losing, training and racing, agony and defeat, all of it comes down to understanding what works and what doesn't. For that, you need an experienced and accomplished coach. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers, to educational, entertaining, and actionable advice. Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of racing, legends, fan clubs, at the races, super fans, and how it all works. Join Coach Bobby J alongside his outskirts visionary co-host, Gus Morton. Prepare to be prepared. It's time to put your socks on. Hello and welcome to our brand new cycling podcast where we cover bike racing. My name is Gus Morton and I'm here with Coach Bobby. Let's uh, give a quick breakdown of what the show is going to be about. We are at the Tour of California. Today was stage one. We're going to cover a little bit of the ins and outs of uh, how the race went down. Tour of California started in Sacramento, finished in Sacramento. 88 mile stage, 143 Ks with uh, 200 feet of elevation gain. It was pretty hot out there. Uh, it was in the 80s. Um, the course, it was flat, pretty pretty boring uh, until the last couple of K, last 15K when we got into town and uh, and we whipped a few laps around the, uh, the state capital. Peter Sagan won the stage. Coach Bobby, give us a bit of a rundown. Yeah, quite a uh, boring stage actually, but we've done that sort of stage before. I think that a lot of the riders coming over from Europe just kind of wanted to get this day kicked off. I think that would probably be one of the easiest breakaways of the season to get into because, as you could see, there was not that many people trying to do it. First breakaway with, with four guys, with Mickey Shar, Lawrence DeVries, Tyler Stites, and George Planet. I really like that name. I was calling him Planet until I heard that he was from France. Those guys got out there and you know seemed to work well enough together until that first intermediate sprint, and then it kind of all went uh, sideways there for a little bit. And then the two more experienced guys, uh, Mickey Shar and Lawrence DeVries, decided to sit up and leave those two young guns to fight it out to basically to the circuits. So not the most exciting start, but I think the guys kind of needed that to get their legs turning a little bit, you know, getting over the jet lag, you know, dealing with the, the time change, the heat, you know, trying to keep their powder dry for tomorrow as well. So not the most interesting stage, but yeah, once we got onto those circuits, then it, then it changed, didn't it? Exactly. And I think, I mean, what was, I thought was quite funny and, 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 and all the commentators and I mean, everyone like that first intermediate sprint when Mickey Shah hit it like a kilometer to go, you're like, what on earth is he doing? But like, I guess that's what the, the intermediate sprints are for. Right. And so often I think that nowadays in cycling, the breakaway, they never really can contest those that fiercely. Um, so it was kind of cool, you know, a little bit of racing going on before they all decided just to pull over the side and wait, wait for the, the group to come. Yeah, that was a little bit mm, unconventional, but I know Mickey pretty well and he doesn't have the best sprint. So he was probably just trying to hit him where they weren't looking and it, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. And our national team guy came through and flew the flag right from the start with winning that first intermediate sprint. Yeah, exactly. It was a good ride by starts. And he's, a, he's one of the guys we're going to be looking at probably across the week. Um, he's a young guy on the national team. But one thing I learned about starts that uh, I want to bring up straight away is he can beatbox. He's a beatboxer. Um, Bobby, you got any 
hidden talents. <laughs> well, now I love the guy already. Uh, if he can beatbox, that uh, you know, grow, growing up in the in the eighties, um, being exposed to you know all the the new generation of hip hop and rap. Um, I used to try to beatbox, uh, very, very bad at it. Just like I, like I tried to break dance and was terrible at that, but it's still my favorite genre of music. I wonder if there's any uh, video footage of that. <laughs> luckily not. Luckily not. I could moonwalk though. It, it, it only took me six months. To, yeah. It only took me six months to learn, but, uh, I could moonwalk. <laughs> there you go. Did not expect that. Um, let's go to the last 15 K the stage on those finishing circuits, then it started to heat up and things got pretty, pretty fast in there. Were you someone to like, when you were racing, did you ever get involved in that sort of thing? Oh man, I tried to stay out of that as far away as possible. But, uh, on that same circuit, I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2007. Uh, we came onto the circuits and we did what the quick step boys did today which was just make sure that we get onto those circuits and then just basically team time trial it from the front. Today, I, I kind of got the idea that they launched a little bit early. And then once they got to the circuits, especially after that uh, second bonus sprint, then it kind of set up and it looked like it was a, a little chess match of who's going to take over. And then Sunweb got up there and it looked like maybe to coin a quick step, we're being a little bit overconfident. And then it looked like they just got kind of got swamped there at the end. And I mean, it, it, it was a free for all. Thank goodness everybody came through unscathed. But uh, I've been in the, on that course and there's very little places to move up. You got a lot of guys dive bombing on the inside of the corner, which, you know, can flick themselves half the time because they have to hit the brakes too hard. But I was particularly watching the way that Peter Sagan was basically crowd surfing through the Peloton there. And yeah, he, you know, the, the lead out train kind of got unorganized and Peter always comes on top. You know, he's a freelancer. He gets in there, he, he rides the wheels. He obviously has the condition to make those accelerations when he needs to. But I tell you one thing, Travis McCabe was coming back on him. If that was another 50 meters, you never know. We would have had our first uh, win for the national team. And that would have been that would have been huge. Um, yeah, I wanted to make a point. Like Travis, like I, I had him on my list um, before the start, only because I've raced with him, and 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 because you know you, you you want to see the underdog do really well, and like he can climb well, you know, he can uh, he can he can um, survive those lumpy and tough days. And I think with tomorrow looking like it's going to be just a death march up to to Lake Tahoe I think that's going to deaden a few legs and uh and and so he could be looking he could be looking to find himself a stage win um as the week progresses and and I hope and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case but yeah crazy finish there like a, a couple of the big teams kind of mistimed that finish I guess uh great move by Lotto with with George Bennett cheeky little move there um which was thwarted by um one of the riders from, from Richie Port's team but it was cool to see that. I like I like George, and it was great to see like the GC guys right from the get go into it. You know, chasing the bonus seconds, and and you know I'm glad I'm not involved in that because <laughs> that just makes the racing so much more stressful and, and and difficult. You know, for for those GC guys like throughout the whole week. But it's cool to watch, and it makes it good, and it kind of makes it exciting, and you get to start to see the the tactics play out. Yeah, I hope that, that that's a, an indication of, of how the rest of the week's going to play out. 
how aggressive it's going to be. And Every second counts in this race with the lack of a time trial this year. Um, so yeah, right away, not only is it higher caravan position, but you know, one second, you know, races have been won and lost by less than one second this year. Uh, and those were races that had a time trial in it. So good for him getting up there and, you know, blowing out the pipes a little bit. Exactly. And I think, I think let's, let's maybe just have a look really quickly at the week, um, of racing and, and kind of just give a, a quick overview. Like, tell me about, I mean, you've been, you've done, uh, this race, you did the first edition. Yes. Like, can you just give me a bit of a rundown of like how that race has changed, uh, between then and now and, and then how you kind of see this week playing out? Yeah, in 2006, it was super exciting. It was the first time that we've had a race of this caliber over here in the U.S. And, you know, all it was in February and every single U.S. rider came to play. Uh, there was not a single one of us that was like, oh, no, I'm preparing the tour. I'm preparing something. Everyone, every single one of us that showed up was 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 gunning for it. And we had some great races. I kind of got the feeling the first couple years that it was a little bit more glamorous than it is now. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the race organization went out of their way. They were like, oh, man, these guys are coming all the way over from Europe. You know, what can we do from them for them? And they they gave like little presents to people, you know, to every every guy on the team. And, you know, you have some of these guys that are making a million dollars a year. But I remember the first year it was like a. I think it was an iP- uh, like an iPod mini. Then it was like a digital camera, a, a Garmin, something like that. And you wouldn't believe, like when guys got back over to Europe, they were like, oh, it's so great. We all got free iPods. And, you know, these things are like, what, 100, 120 bucks. But it, it, it added a little bit of, hey, I'm going to do that race next year because, hey, maybe they'll give the, the iPad away. Um, they never wind up giving iPad. They never gave away iPads, by the way. But you know, we we stayed at some really really nice hotels. Um, I think that's kind of you know now that the race has gotten bigger and it's been taken over by ASO. You know, they're looking at the the bean counter guys a little bit more. But those first couple years, man, we were going through the marquee towns and starts and finishes, and staying in the greatest hotels. And eating really good food. Now I have to admit, because I was there with uh, George's Hincapi Halawesco team with in 2016, I guess DS'd for them, and then I was there last year with the Hincapi, or I'm sorry, the Halawesco Citadel team. And yeah, I was kind of blown. I was kind of disappointed. I was like, wait a second, you guys don't get any, you know, free little swag, and you kind of have to stay in these little, you know motel too cheap for the hotel sort of things but um you know you know looking at the race the the distances are are so long you know outside of today and the final two stages you know you're 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 going to be on your bike for what 120 to 130 miles you know with that that stage especially tomorrow and is that really necessary um i know hey listen my dad was a race promoter. I can sit here, you know, on my sofa and, and, you know, criticize things. But for me, like you're getting guys to come all the way over from Europe. It's kind of in a transition period between the spring classics and the preparation for the tour. 
do they really need those long stages or wouldn't it be more fun to make those shorters a those stages a little bit shorter a little bit more exciting and kind of show off a little bit more of the the gems of california um you know california is a massive state and i know we got to get from point a to point b but for me man making things a little bit shorter and a little bit more exciting would would have been better and stage two, three, four, and five, they're going to be putting in some hours on the bike. There's no doubt about it. And this time of year, maybe it's good for them, you know, as, as far as resetting the dials and starting for preparing for the, for the, for the summer. But, ah, oh, gosh, these guys race so long and so hard all year long that rarely do you see them do back to back to back to back 120, 130 miles. Stages. Yeah, exactly. Like, like this is a, a pretty serious race now and, and, and the team send really good guys, but like there's over 20,000 meters of climbing and, and yeah, there's, you know, a couple of, uh, well, several longer than 200 K stages, um, which is savage. Like, yeah, 220, 214, 210. Uh, and they're not flat either. Each of those stages have some climbing. So it's a hard race. I remember when I did this, um, did this race a few years back, we had a similar stage to tomorrow. And then, and, and I remember guys after that stage, like, you know, he walked into the, the dining room and, and, and all the riders were just mad. Everyone was just like, you know, you'd just be standing at the lifts waiting to go, you know, get the lift to go back to your room or whatever. And someone would just be standing there, another rider, and they just turn to you and they go, this is bullshit. Like, yeah, they can't treat us like this. This is insane. This race is so hard. You know, and everyone was like getting real grumpy. And and to quote one of my favorite lines from Pulp Fiction, you know, they've got the same stuff over there as we have over here. It's just a little bit different. And it, it's true. Like they don't have their buses. They don't have their showers. You know, the long transfers. You know. You know, in California, let's face it, there's a lot of traffic. When you get to the hotel room, you don't have all the frills and thrills because you can't bring everything over with you on the plane. Things are just a little bit different for these guys. So, you know, they're going to have to adjust to that. And, you know, they they probably don't all have their personal chefs and their chef trucks like they do in Europe. I would bet very uh, a lot of money that they don't have that. So they're eating the buffet food and sometimes the buffet food is good and sometimes it's not. You know, they're drinking different things. They just don't have their normal kind of support recoveries uh, protocols down the way they would have them over in Europe. So these long stages and then those transfers afterwards, yeah, it definitely is fatiguing, no doubt about it. But that can be kind of cool too. I would like from a spectator's perspective um, or at least from a race perspective, because like at least now it's like, Oh, what can happen? Peter Sagan won this race against uh, Julian Alaphilippe a few years ago. Um, I know like two years ago, a break went um, with all the climbers and GC guys, like, you know, 80 kilometers from the finish or 75 Ks from the finish. So weird stuff happens that doesn't normally happen, which is kind of cool. And I hope that, you know, because this year's going to, it's going to be hard and it's going to be so hard. Hopefully it doesn't deaden that. And it just, uh, and it just encourages bunch riding. Um, quickly, let's get, let's get, uh, who do you think's going to win the overall real quick? Oh boy. Um, I have to go with the education first team. They have just so many guys that could be in there. You know, Rigo, of course we know who Rigo is. Uh, TJ, we know his, his ability, his qualities as an athlete, when, when he's on, he's on, 
Um, you know, but then you're looking at a guy like Lawson and then uh, Sergio Haguita. Like, this is a guy that just joined the team. He's like the, another one of these superkin kids from Colombia that have just progressed so quickly that they fast-tracked him. And, man, when you have the support of those four guys backed up by Taylor, your brother, and Alex Howes, man, that's a dangerous team. You can play a lot of different cards there. If they're on, if, if all of those guys are on, they're really on, and each of them is capable. A lot of those guys are capable of, of, of winning the race themselves on their day, if not winning a stage, you know. So exactly, I think that's a good team, and hopefully, uh, and hopefully they are all five. But yeah, to answer your question, I I want to go with Rigo. I think Rigo was in a really good place before he got injured. He went back to Colombia. He's training. He's fresh. He's got a great team. He's got a lot of morale, obviously, with an American sponsor, and that's kind of what it boils down to as well. Is when you're going up these climbs and you're suffering for this sort of miles, you got to be doing it for a reason. And I know there's world tour points and this, that, the other thing, but there isn't the pressure, the media attention, you know, the the you know, going through your hometown and seeing your families, that sort of thing. So it's it's going to have to be that X factor. Who wants it the most? Who's prepared for this the most? Who's kind of marked this on their calendar the longest? And maybe Rigo didn't really have this, you know, X as in the middle of the off season as as a as a major your goal but I think he needs to get back on track and I think he has the team to do it yeah I agree I think he's going to be uh I think he's going to be the sleeper um obviously George Bennett seems pretty keen uh and and I reckon he like I think he'll go uh, I think he'll go close Richie Port's a bit of an unknown for me and then um and then but I think my I'm going to pick a bit of an outsider I think Rowan Dennis he always seems to do well in the U.S. he's, he's done well at this race uh I mean, maybe it's going to be a little too steep for him on on uh, on Saturday, but he's an incredible athlete and he constantly kind of can reinvent himself. So let's see if he can, you know, have that breakthrough here. The guys did not come all the way over here just to, you know, sit in their hotel rooms and watch Netflix. You know, they're they're ready to race. So let's get it on. Speaking of Netflix, did you what did you guys do? I've always wondered this. Um before Netflix, because like, when you were like racing back when you started your career, between stages, like without a mobile phone and without, you know, on-demand access to like all this stuff, what did you guys do at night? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely not the same as it is now. Um, I, I read a lot of books. I wrote in my journal, my training diary. I looked at my training. You know, it was a total nerd in that way. Um, you know, guys, I remember Tony Rominger, he was like one of my heroes and he came to Kofidis the same year I did. And he was all about the DVDs. And I remember we were at a race in Spain and he walked in and I think he took David Miller with him and David Miller came back. Like you wouldn't believe what Tony did. And I said, well, what? He goes, and remember back in the day when they had DVDs and they were kind of all over the place and CDs and they kind of had like the top 20 CDs and the top 20 DVDs. He basically said, yeah, I want one of each of those. And like to David, who was making like Neopro salary and this guy just basically saying one of each, please. That was, you know, he, he was pretty, pretty shocked by that. The DVD player, you know, the, the older computers that had the DVD tray. 
Um, you know, now all these computers are so thin, they don't have that. Um, I'm, I'm sure I have one or two of those sort of computers laying around here somewhere that got me through some tough times. But no, I was, uh, I was, a, I was pretty much a homebody. I didn't really look outside for more stimulation. I was more worried about being calm, recovering as much as I could for the next day. So I wasn't one of those guys that was sitting down in the, in the lobby drinking coffee and, and, and just basically talking until midnight. I was, I, I was a little bit more regimented than that. Gotcha. Yeah. That, I mean, no one's sitting down in the lobby drinking coffee nowadays, that's for sure. Or at least in my experience, everyone was, you know, on their phones, head planted. You bet you barely even talk to your roommate. Um, let's go to tomorrow's stage. We've, we've, we've looked like we mentioned it earlier that it's, it's a, it's a big boy. Um, Give me a rundown. Rancho Cordova to South Lake Tahoe. Yeah, even before we get started on the course, we have to talk about two big things. And that's A, for me, jet lag. How, when guys got over here, what they did to prepare for it, uh, how they adjusted, you know, did they come over and get on program right away? Were they taking melatonin to help, you know, sleep at night and reset all the serotonin levels? Um, you know, were they outside with, in the sunlight, in the natural sunlight without their sunglasses on? These are all sort of tricks that you use to get over jet lag and nine hours is, is pretty, pretty substantial, you know? And then the other thing is just the altitude, you know, tomorrow, I mean, we always were told, and this is maybe something that we could, you know, debunk in the, in the in the legends section one day is we were always told that if you went to altitude, you had to race within the first 24 hours or it would take you three weeks to acclimatize. And yeah, these guys are not going to be at altitude for very long, but we all know that, you know, with partial pressure and pressure gradient, it, it definitely affects the, the way that you can absorb oxygen into the blood and thus into the tissue. So there, there's going to be some guys that are caught out with that, I think. And, you know, th this is extreme altitude. Yeah, 2,600 meters, a couple of those. But the real thing for me, because we did this exact same stage, uh, well, the riders did, and I drove behind them. So I saw the absolute death march that it turned into is you're basically climbing for like 80 miles uh, and it's not the the steepest climb but it's just one of those just grinders and there's very little time to just kind of relax last year was a little bit different they had some summits and then some descents and then another summit and then a descent and then the final over over the crater in in into tahoe so this is going to be just you know hey tough it out you know, eat correctly because when you're at altitude, you're a little bit more dependent on carbohydrates, you know, with, with, um, your, your fueling with hydration, that's going to be super important, especially if it's, you know, super nice weather and, and actually hot, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult outside of the kilometers and outside of the, the altitude meters that you're doing. How do you, just to, before, like, you, you said something really interesting there, and that's like, you know, a lot of these riders are dealing with the jet lag, and uh, and we're coming to a stage that it's really the only time we hit, like, proper altitude in this race, and it's for, you know, it's relatively briefly, I guess, but how do you prepare, like, how would you be bringing your riders here to do that? Like, how are you getting your guys off the plane? What day are they getting here? What are they doing to get 
ready for this. It, it, it all depends where these guys that were doing the classics and, you know, took a week or two off or a week and not even, and then got them over here. But I think I would want to get them over here at least seven days before the, the start. Um, anybody else, I, I would even say longer, especially if you could get up and go to altitude. I know that uh, Richie Port was up in Park City. Peter Sagan normally goes up to the Tahoe Rim area. Uh, Pete Stetna, I'm sure a lot of the Americans did some some altitude acclima acclimation uh, days, weeks, months, who knows. So, I mean, it, it's it's tough because you got to remember this is just one race out of the calendar and there are so many races that maybe if you have a guy that was specifically targeting this, you could get him over here three weeks early, put him up at a you know, up on top of a mountain somewhere or up, up in Tahoe, which is, I used to have a house up there for that reason. And, and just get them, get them used to that sort of scenario. But, you know, you do at altitude, you do lose muscle mass. So you got to keep up with that in the gym or doing some torque work out on, out on the climbs. So it, it's fickle, man, with, with altitude, with jet lag, with this kind of time of the year, which I would call the transition period between seasons, there's so many variable, so many variables, and you could think that you cross the T's and dotted the I's on everything, and then it just goes tits up, or a guy could fly in three days before because he had a wedding to go to, and and all of a sudden he's just pinging right away. Um, so many different var variables go into this, and that's what does make this race a little bit special. Exactly. Yeah, it's a lot. So details of the stage, 214.5 kilometers, uh, 14,400 feet of gain. So that's over 4,000 meters. Um, you get up, yeah, over 2,600 meters, like around 9,000 feet. It's meant to be sunny, a little bit of breeze. And yeah, like you said, it's a death march. I rode um, similar stage to this, yeah, a couple of years ago. And I just remember like, not being, I, I could, I remember just thinking the profile looks like it's a hundred kilometer climb, but like, it's gotta be barely noticeable, right? Like, man, you're climbing the whole day. It's like, it's, it messes with your head big time. So yeah, it's, it's a hard way to start the tour and it's going to change the dynamic of the race. Even if tomorrow is not necessarily as like drastically, um, selective, I think it will change the, the, the rest of the day and we'll see that run some people down we've just got to uh, quickly interrupt there because the phone's ringing um we didn't describe we didn't explain this at the top of the show but uh we've got a, a super fan uh huge sports fan out there he's uh, anonymous would, would has chosen to remain anonymous um and he's going to be calling in each day with a couple of questions you know he's the cat two he's speaking on behalf of the cat threes who have been listening to the cat fives so these are going to come out of nowhere. And uh, luckily we've got the coach here, Bobby J, is going to take, uh, take the uh, control on this one and, um, and sort fact from fiction, get rid of the superstitions, you know, I don't know, all that stuff that the Catfires want to know. So, super fan, give it to us. Fellas, really happy to be talking to you. Big, big fan. I've had metaphorical posters of you guys tacked up in my garage in front of my rollers for these long winter nights here. Anyway, I got a quick couple of questions for you. All right. Um, let's see. I heard recently that EF education racer Taylor Finney has been coaching himself. It makes sense in a lot of ways since I'm sure he's had a ton of programs over the years from different coaches at every level. 
and he probably has like a free training peaks account or something like that. But kind of sounds a little risky if, if you're not, you know, highly motivated like I am. Um, how's this approach kind of taken at the pro tour level? I mean, is this something that a lot of guys are doing or is this pretty rare? Are guys coaching themselves or are they kind of just picking up Joe Friel's book and telling the team coaches to, you know, fuck off or how does it, how does it work? Um, and you know, how's he doing this season? How's his season? How's his season been going? I know he's in California this week. What's, what's it looking like this week for him? He's got, uh, no TT. He's got a bunch of Hills. Um, and he's got a couple of GC contenders. Is he just there to kind of, you know, get Rigo on his wheel is, is, is Rigoberto just going to sit up, sit behind that big body and kind of ride the flats. What do you guys think? Uh, big fan. Listen, if you guys have any actual posters of yourselves, send them my way. Otherwise <laughs> I'm going to keep listening. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, ciao. Cheers, man. Thanks for that. Um, I do have a couple of portraits I like. I might send them your way, get a bit of feedback, but Bobby, you should take this one, obviously. Uh, you're the expert here. Um, I will admit that I've coached Taylor before, and I coached him before. I basically, yeah, I, I have known him since he was a bump in his mom's tummy. Um, I coached him before his accident, and I coached him after his accident. And he's a very unique individual, and he's gone through a lot of changes in his life. Um, you know, when he used to send in his training, it was like a laser printer. And sometimes as a coach, you're like, you're like, wait a second, like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, this is kind of like a prescription. The execution doesn't have to match the prescription, like a hundred percent. And then it was a little bit different and, you know, working with him through his injury, um, through his metamorphosis as, as a human being, um, I, I definitely started to understand where he was coming from. And he once mentioned to me that he wanted his training to be like a piano symphony. And I am very type A, and I know what it takes. And I've coached some of the biggest riders in the world and, you know, had a lot of experience with myself and there, I do believe that there is a, uh, an equilibrium there, a balancing point, a middle ground, if you will. And I'm very interested to see how that this works out for Taylor. For me, I was a little disappointed with his spring campaign. You know, when we were working together and even before, I mean, all of us know Taylor's ability at, for the classics, especially Paris-Roubaix. And all I wanted for him was to have a clear run at the classics because after his injury, he had to fight hard and he was in some dark places. And, you know, you're, you're trying to give a little bit of rope and then trying to pull it back at the same time. And I was just, I just wanted him and I want him in the future to have a clean run at the classics where he is a hundred percent on. And unfortunately I didn't see that happen this year. I don't think he had any injuries. I didn't see him race that much prior. And you, one thing you got to remember about Taylor Finney is he's Taylor fucking Finney. He's a game. He's a, he's a gamer. He's a total, 
He, he is a beast. So I don't think you could ever count him out, even if he dropped out of every single race leading up to Roubaix. I was still expecting him to be in the final of Roubaix until we saw him on the side of the road, kind of blended into the crowd. And unfortunately, the stressful the stress that goes on inside that car with the DS, evidently he, he kind of passed them and, and left them there on the side of the road. And it's not like back in my day where when I had a mechanical mechanical one time i actually had to stop and grab a bike from uh, a, a wheel off of a bike of somebody that was riding next to me and with those disc brakes and all this fancy tire widths and pressures he couldn't do that so um i i hope that he he uses this race to build for the summer i hope that he is that very positive teammate that looks after his team leaders and man i would love to see him scream come screaming down in one of these finishes and pull off a stage win like he did a couple years ago i think everyone has to plan their work and work their plan and that having another brain or another couple brains giving you information giving you feedback giving you accountability more than anything i think that's what every really good coach is is you know you want to uh, not my way or the highway, you want to find a middle ground. But as an athlete, for me, when I knew someone was looking in at my files and it got to that last last interval of the day where if there was no one looking at my files or, and, and who knows, maybe they would never were, but like it drove me to say, wow, these guys are taking time out of their day to help me get better. And that's all coaching is, right? Is just helping someone get better. That I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. And then when I did finish that workout, man, you're going home with a little spring in your step. You plug in your, your, your SRM, your Garmin, your head unit of whatever type these days, and, and you're proud. And, you know, even if your coach doesn't get back to you, or even if he doesn't even look at it, that gave me the motivation to get through that, that hard interval. And yeah, there were days where you were just like, listen, I can't do this. Something happened. You know, my kids got sick. My, uh, I didn't sleep well last night. I felt sick. That's a totally different story. But when you're trying to push yourself, sometimes you do need that external motivation to do so. And, but other than that, I don't know many riders, especially these days where everything is so calculated that go, go full solo. I mean, there are guys that train in different ways and don't look at the numbers and don't really care about, you know, weight and whatnot. Uh, but those are very few and far between. But those are artists and this artists are part of our sport. And that mentality as a coach, as a DS, as a teammate, you have to accept and, and, and get the best out of that person. And, you know, but this is a cutthroat sport. Uh, I'm not saying it's all about winning but you do have to perform and you know when when the time comes for contracts you need to have those results that show for it and you know that's just the the name of the game these days and that's what it seems like it's obviously like the rise of technology and science and its involvement in the sport uh or its place in the sport like you've kind of spanned that spectrum right you've seen like before the days of power meters like, how did you analyze stuff back then? Were you just like, fuck it, I'll just go like do six hours a day and then if, if it sticks, you know, throw it at the wall? Or was there some sort of like voodoo that you could apply? Or was this, was, what was the science back then? 
Man, I mean, we were working with heart rate monitors, and then I was one of the first guys to adopt into the uh, the direct force power meter with the SRM coming out. I think I had that in 99. I mean, it had been out earlier, but I think I got my first one in 99. And yeah, that changed everything uh, because a watt is a watt. Like your heart rate is so variable. And I remember uh, Dr. Max Testa was one of my, my first coaches when I was on Motorola. And, you know, there was your heart rate zones. And some days I could hit that threshold heart rate zone, which I remember was like 170 to 175, like with two fingers in my nose. And other times I couldn't hit it if I was basically sprinting up the side of a mountain. And I didn't quite understand why. But nowadays, you know, a watt is very specific because there's only, you know, the way that you create watts is torque time, times RPM. And the way that you create a heart rate, either a high heart rate or a low heart rate, there's a thousand variables in, in that. So, so it definitely got a lot more specific. Um, and yeah, that is dating myself saying that I actually used a heart rate monitor only. Um, but yeah, that's the way it was. It was a lot of just throwing a, throwing a ball against the wall and see if it sticks. Uh, what's the, been the biggest game changer? I like piece of technology. We are, I asked this question, uh, or Lockie, uh, my brother asked this question to Juan Antonio Fletcher and he said it was not power meters, but training peaks, like, uh, uh, the ability to record yeah. and analyze your training. What do you reckon? Uh, I would agree a hundred percent. And those two kind of go hand in hand because what would training peaks be or any of these evaluation software platforms, what would they be if you didn't have data to put in there? But the way, you know, looking at a single SRM file back in the day uh, before the performance management chart, it was just just a single snippet. It was like it was like this is what it was today. But like, how did that affect you three days from now? How did the training that you affected you, you know, that you did 10 days ago or 20 days ago affect you? So, yeah, I think that really gave I, I always believe, like, understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, you know, all those graphs, you know, let's face it, it's a it's a two dimensional mathematical graph. It's a figure. It's not who you are as a human being, but it can really give you some insight into the, you know, am I tired? Am I fresh? Am I feeling good? Am I not? Because, you know, numbers, numbers don't lie. And that was always the hardest thing I think before training with a heart rate monitor is you never knew when to take an easy day because you start because fatigue got, became so common that even when you were a little bit less fatigued than you were the day before you you thought you were fresh and this this evaluation software is is amazing the other num the other really good thing that I like is just the 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 wheels. I'm a wheel guy and the the way the wheels have come out and and developed over the years and how fast they are and how stable they are um that's that's another thing because I mean when you're out on the road, you know, those are your two contact points between, you know, the road and your skin and your skin. Th that's got to be important. That's got to be important. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that too, like um, with rims getting wider and tires kind of getting bigger and, and the impact that that's having. And yeah, I'm intrigued by that. So I reckon like for if you were, if I was just, you know, Joe Blow wanting to go out 
and uh, and and train for my local crit. You kind of said the takeaway from that that monitoring those monitoring programs and that that data collection is a big part of it. Uh, being able to predict uh, recovery. Oh man, to me, ninety percent of the guys that I've worked with, you don't have to tell them to train harder. The hard part is getting them to to train less or to at least recover in between those hard sessions. Um, you know, this is a tough man. This is a tough man sport. Everyone loves to do four or five, six hours, but not many guys like to take a day off or to go out and do an hour to two hours, but with a super low TSS. They think it's just a, a, a waste of time. But yeah, recovery is is so important, and I think it's a very overlooked thing because with all the pressure. With, with all the social media, you know, you always feel like you have to go out and do something because you're seeing everybody else do it. But man, a day off is a day off. An easy day is an easy day. Don't, don't blur those lines. Okay, so we're, uh, when you're in the end of the show, tomorrow, you know, how are you, your, your expert opinion, give us your expert opinion on tomorrow. Who's going to win? Who's going to do what? How's it going to play out? Oh boy. Um, picking a winner is going to be tough. I think that all the GC guys and some X factors are going to be together at the finish. I, I'm going to predict, I mean, Tom Squeenge, I mean, he, he's won this stage before he knows exactly what he's doing. He's been up in, up in, you know, probably training at the wattage cottage again. Um, I'm going to pick somebody, I'm going to, I'm going to pick Tom's because he's, he knows the stage really well. Um, but th- it could be another, another total outsider that just jumps away because I do think it's going to be a selective stage, but it's not going to be the, the, the stage that determines the race. Yeah. I'm going to go with, uh, with Shackman, Maximilian. Um, cause he was, I know I watched him race the other week and he was like very impressive. And, uh, and I think this kind of suits him. He's pretty punchy, but he can climb well. And, and you saw him today, he was getting stuck in. Uh, in that second intermediate sprint, so but I mean, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Like, it's, it's gonna such an odd, odd stage. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And just before we go, one last little bit, we um, are reaching out to a couple of the riders, like a couple of the guys in the race, and just asking them to give us a text on on the stage, like immediately as it finishes. Um, so I text Lockie, my brother, uh, obviously. And uh, he's a man of few words. So here's what he had to say. He said, sleepy start, lung-burning panic attack on the circuits, nothing lost, nothing gained. Uh, and then our show producer reached out to uh, Lockie's teammate, EF um, Education's Alex Howes. And he had an equally kind of cryptic message, uh, fake wind, flat roads, many conversations, slow ramp up, bus circuits, internal panic attack, speed, 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 Find Rigo, finish, pineapple juice, chocolate milk, pad thai. So there's quite a bit there. There's quite a bit to unpack. Uh, Alex, if you're listening, tell me about fake wins. Uh, tell me about the many conversations. And uh, pineapple juice, is that some insider information that we don't know about? Thank you so much for listening. Follow the journey at velonews.com. Bobby J, a pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. See you tomorrow. Vela News Voices is a new multimedia platform featuring a collection of cycling luminaries, each with their own distinct point of view and channel. Coaches, athletes, movers and shakers, visionaries, 
the old guard, the new guard, the vanguard. Vela News Voices is how and where the story of our sport is being told now and into the future. Fizzo is hosted by Bobby J and Gus Morton. Produced by Manual for Speed, edited by Eddie Rogers, and a special thanks to our anonymous superfan. Don't forget to share, follow, and subscribe on SoundCloud. Okay, 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 okay.